This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Get your Bibles open to Revelation 17. Revelation 17. And uh, while you're doing that, let's huddle up here again. We've been thinking before we get into our, our text, we've been thinking a little bit about church. Past years forced Christians and pastors all over the world to, uh, to rethink what the scriptures teach about church. And I think it's, it's a good opportunity for us to do that uh, because over time, uh, some, some you know, sloppy approaches to our thinking about church can, can creep in and we start developing some habits that, that we don't want to retain. We've been, uh, been establishing the fact that, that, that this, this idea of online church is a, is a contradiction in terms because the only authoritative teaching we have on the church, scriptures, recognize just one legitimate manifestation of church, and that's a flesh and blood gathering. It's a flesh and blood gathering. Now, last week, we looked at Ephesians 5, and we saw some of the reasons why that's the case and why many of us over the past year have been, been having this gnawing sense that watching church on TV just isn't the same as being there. And it's more than experiential. It's profoundly biblical, profoundly spiritual. We looked at Ephesians 5, and we recognized there that God has issued a command for us to be continually filled with the Spirit, continually filled with the Spirit. You need that, I need that, if we're going to make it across the finish line of this life and the Christian race that God set out for us. The problem is, we don't do that for ourselves I don't fill myself up. You don't fill yourself up. We don't do that for one another. It's a divine passive. God does the work of filling, continually filling his people up with the spirit, but he uses means to accomplish ends. Ephesians 5 talks about a whole list of activities that happen within the context of the gathered church, the flesh and blood gathering of the church that God uses to do that important work in us. In other words, when someone is saying it's just not the same, they're recognizing that something spiritual has gone missing in their lives. And by the way, for, for us here, this is an important thing to remember why it is you need to be committed to this week in and week out. This is not, well, I'll go if it fits in my schedule. It doesn't work that way. This is something that needs to be part of your weekly schedule because your soul needs this. Your soul needs this. Your soul is of inestimable value. And you cannot feed it a diet of digital content. It will not work. It will not work. Now, there's a group of people who knew this. There's a group of people who knew this. We read about them in the book of Acts. It's the first church. Listen to the way they behaved. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together, and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. Every day, 
they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, enjoying the favor of all the people. This is what, this is what they committed themselves to. Now look what happens. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I, I think this was a group of people who probably approached life uh, just a little bit differently than we do. You know, we, we tend to evaluate everything we do on a cost-benefit analysis. <laughs> everything we do. We'll, so our thought is when we wake up in the morning, will going to church enhance my personal well-being? That's the ten- tendency is to evaluate whether or not we're getting involved with stuff on that. Will being part of this, whatever it is, in this case, church, will this enhance my personal well-being? I don't know that the first church had that mindset. I think they had a more communal and externally focused mindset. Instead of waking up in the morning thinking about whether or not they're going to go to church, what they said was, I know that my participation in my church is going to contribute to the well-being of those around me, so I'm going. I'm there. And that's an important thing to glean from Ephesians 5. You, being part of the flesh and blood gathering of the church, is contributing to the spiritual well-being of those around you. It's not about you, as my parents would often say to me as a child. <laughs> it's not about you. It's not about you. So, particularly those you're watching online who don't live in our geographic region... You're in a different part of the state. You're in a different part of the country. Um, Please resist the urge to see this as a reasonable alternative to your flesh and blood participation in a local church. Resist that urge. If you need help finding a church, we love to do that kind of work. Let us know and we'll help you. Okay, Revelation 17. Appearances can be deceiving. People are not always what they seem. Or how about this one? Don't judge a book by its cover. These are all familiar phrases that convey the same lesson. Fairy tales know this and teach this. An arrogant but insecure queen repeatedly invites her truth-telling magic mirror to praise her as the fairest in the land. Then one day, to her shock and outrage, the mirror praises the peasant girl Snow White as more beautiful than the queen. All along, the queen's beauty has been only skin deep, contradicting the ugly, self-absorbed heart within. Only when the queen disguises herself as a hag to poison her rival does her outward appearance finally reflect her repulsive inner reality. The beast, whom beauty grows to love, despite his repugnant appearance and gruff manner, was once a human prince, handsome, handsome on the outside, but twisted by selfish arrogance within The enchantment that turned him into a beast had translated the ugliness hidden in his heart into an abomination for all to see. People may not always be who they seem to be. Although we know this intellectually, we still may be easy prey for the flashy image, the manipulative hype, the convincing come on that had its origins in the garden. Jesus knows that his churches can be gullible. The church at Thyatira can tolerate a Jezebel who seduces its members into spiritual adultery. 
Laodicea can congratulate itself on its affluence and self-sufficiency, oblivious to its real poverty and blind to its blindness. Others have stained themselves and traded away their integrity through compromise with the culture. So if churches like these are wowed by the attractiveness of the empire's luxuriant economy, no one would be surprised. But Jesus will be displeased. The vision that opens before John's eyes in chapter 17 first paints the harlot Babylon's superficial attractiveness, which explains how she can be alluring not only to pagans, but also to Christians. Then John's going to see the ugliness under the cosmetics and accessories. And finally, he's going to see Babylon's shameful decomposition at the hands of her lovers. And through this dramatic and detailed unpacking of the brief description of Babylon's fall in the seventh bowl, Jesus challenges us to look past appearances, perceive the horrendous spiritual reality at the rotten core of Rome's impressive culture. You know, first century Christians may have wondered, how can Rome be so bad when she looks so good? Or how could Rome ever fall when she looks so strong? 21st century Christians living in cultures confident in their affluence and technology may have the same questions. Jesus' answer is the vision of the harlot, Babylon, her beauty and her demise. Chapter 17, 18, the first half of 19, there are two metaphorical women discussed throughout these two and a half chapters. The harlot, Babylon, and the bride of the lamb. One is judged, the other blessed. One is faithless, the other's faithful. One is a prostitute worshiping false gods, the other a chaste bride devoted to the Lord. Here in chapter 17, John concentrates on the harlot, Babylon. Now before we look at this, let's quickly get our bearings. Where are we? We just finished chapter 16, which is the end of human history. Seven bowls of God's judgment bring us all the way to the end of human history. And as we've seen throughout Revelation, this is what it does. It takes you from the first century to the end of human history, then it backs the truck up and shifts the camera angle. Now take a look at it again. Moves forward, then it does it again. All right. Shift the angle, back up the truck, and take a look at this again. Now what are we doing with chapter 17? In short, God is trying to show John why it is it was just for him to judge Babylon the way he did. So let's look at it. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. So this is one of the angels who was involved in bringing about the final judgment comes to John to show him some things. And this angel is basically going to show us the true colors of governments, cultures, institutions that receive the full force of God's judgment. These these worldly governments and, and cultures and institutions are portrayed as a prostitute. Why? Not because sexual sin is all that characterized these entities, but because sexual immorality is the predominant image, 
the Bible uses to convey the sin of idolatry. Now, in saying she's representative of governments, cultures, and institutions characterized by worldliness, I'm essentially already identifying her. But to make it clear, we're given her name in verse 5, Babylon the Great. Now, we know Babylon didn't exist in John's day. It was buried under sand. But Babylon became code for Rome. So the angels helping John to see the empire that has exiled him on the island of Patmos because he wouldn't shut up about Jesus... The government that has opposed the church, the corrupt system that has persecuted believers, is idolatrous Rome. Now, is that all she is? No. Look at verse 15. Then the angel said to me, the waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. So the the prostitute is not just Rome, but all peoples, multitudes, nations, languages like Rome, of the same ilk as Rome in every age. Verse 3, then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The prostitute whose name is Babylon the Great and represents Rome is sitting on a beast with seven heads and ten horns. Who's the beast? The same beast that we saw in chapter 13, the beast from the sea. Now, what do we say that that beast represents? This beast represents every manifestation of evil in any government throughout history. Who was that for John? Rome. This is important. In chapter 17, both the woman, the harlot, and the beast are Rome. Both. The woman, the prostitute, is showing John an aspect to Rome that has not yet been divulged. She's showing us aspects to governments, cultures, institutions that we've not yet seen. It's as if God is saying to us, beast captures part of what I need you to see in worldly institutions, but harlot captures another aspect to what I need you to see in worldly institutions. So both the woman and the beast are Rome and John's day, two different images to capture two different aspects to Rome. Verse four, the woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand, filled with the abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. So here she's described in a lot of detail. She's stunning. She's visually appealing. She's wealthy. She conveys economic prosperity, cultural achievement. Everything about her is alluring, attractive, enticing. But there's a problem. The spectacular golden cup she holds in her hand is filled with the filth of her adulteries. Again, sexual imagery is metaphorical for idolatry. Verse 5, the name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. I mean, how often, think about it, folks, how often have we seen totalitarian regimes clothed in decadence? I've seen pictures of post-World War II homes once occupied by the Gestapo, Massive mansions that would boggle the mind. Massive mansions equipped with movie theaters and indoor swimming pools. While their own people were faced with grinding poverty and their enemies were being gassed. How often in history have we seen this marriage of sinful debauchery and violent tyranny? 
This is how the marriage of the gorgeous prostitute and beast are portrayed. Verse seven, then the angel said to me, why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman of the beast she rides, for which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and yet will come up out of the abyss and go to its destruction. The inhabitants of the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world, will be astonished when they see the beast, because it once was, now is not, and yet will come. Now let's break this down a little bit. This beast once was, now is not, and yet will come. The most straightforward way to read this is the same way we did in chapter 13 when we were provided with our initial description of the beast. The beast had a fatal wound that healed. What is that? Nations rise and nations fall. Manifestations of evil in government and culture will go through times of flourishing and decline. It's a pattern of flourishing and decline, flourishing and decline. There are times when totalitarian rule seems to be a thing of the past. But history keeps rolling along and totalitarian power returns with all its ferocity and cruelty. This is a parody of the resurrection, by the way. It's a parody of the resurrection. Verses 9 to 11 are tricky, so let me try to break this down a little bit. Verse 9, this calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. Okay, Seven heads, seven hills are reference to Rome. Just like the Big Apple is New York, or the Windy City is Chicago. This is how Rome came to be known. Okay? There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. But when he does come, he must remain for only a little while. Okay, so the seven hills are also the seven kings. Five are done with, one currently is, the seventh is to come. How do we deal with that? Well, one approach is to see this uh, as a reference to seven kings, as successive uh, Roman emperors, okay? Seven successive Roman emperors. So the idea is that five have fallen, one currently reigns, and one will reign briefly in the future. The problem with this is that Domitian was the 12th Roman emperor, not the sixth. And if we start with Augustus, the list includes Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, Nero as five fallen rulers. The sixth would be Vespasian, which does not fit if Revelation was written during the reign of Domitian. Now, even that approach leaves out three emperors who ruled only briefly after the fall of Nero, Galba, Otho, and Vitellius. It doesn't seem to work. Second approach is to say it's not kings or emperors, but it's empires, world empires. Okay. Now, here the challenge is which empires to include. <laughs> Hendrickson lists Babylon, Assyria, New Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece as the five fallen empires, with Rome as the sixth. Alfred lists Egypt, Nineveh, Babylon, Persia, Greece as the five fallen, with Rome as the sixth and reigning empire. There, see, there are just problems. There are problems with, with historical approaches that lead us to consider a symbolic approach, especially since numbers in Revelation are after, often after uh, qualitative meaning more than they're after a quantitative measurement. The numbers 7 and 10 have been used this way throughout Revelation. 7 stands for completeness, and here would represent the totality of Antichrist government throughout history. Picture a beast with seven heads. Five have been cut off. The idea is that Christ's first coming inflicted a deadly blow to Satan and his beast, who continues fighting undaunted, employing the power of his deadly sixth head with a seventh yet to come. So the point is that the war is getting closer to the end. 
Verse 11, the beast who once was, now is, is an eighth king. He belongs to the, se- to the seven and is going to his destruction. Now, I think this reference to the eighth is a reference to the Antichrist to come at the end. We know from 1 John, many Antichrists have already come in the world. They're already here. There are many human agents and institutions that combat the church and the gospel message. They are Antichrist, but we also know a climactic time of tribulation will arise at the end but Antichrist is destined for destruction. Verse 12, the 10 horns you saw are 10 kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. They will wage war against the lamb, but the lamb will triumph over them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings and with him will be his called chosen and faithful followers. In the 1990s, it was common for dispensationalists to identify the ten horns with the European common market on the premise that a reunified Europe would be the seventh head of the beast having ten horns. Since there were then nine member nations, preachers assured their hearers that the entry of a tenth nation would signal the final tribulation in Christ's return. Today, when the European Union consists of 27 nations, this theory seems less plausible to me. In John's day, Rome was organized in 10 provinces, and it was mainly provincial leaders who persecuted the Christians. So the beast's power is subdivided into smaller units. Now, I don't think there's any reason to believe that 10 will be the magical number. We've seen numbers possess more qualitative meaning than quantitative measurement. 10 horns symbolize, as Hendrickson puts it, the mighty ones of this earth in every realm, art, Education, commerce, industry, government, insofar as they serve the central authority. So there's a partnership between these subdivisions and the ruling power, the ruling authority. Ten is another number of completion, so this may simply indicate that with such allies exercising his authority, the Antichrist will dominate all society for a brief time. Verse 15, Then the angel said to me, The waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. I mentioned this already. It's evil manifested in government, cultures, institutions throughout human history. Verse 16, The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. The beast and the prostitute are different images for the same entity in Rome's day. Remember, that's, this is this, in John's day. It's Rome. This verse is showing us the self-destructive nature of evil. Totalitarianism feeds on itself. It devours itself. Tom Schreiner says, The city of man will collapse under the weight of its own evil and hate. Verse 17, For God has put it in their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to hand over to the beast their royal authority until God's words are fulfilled. So once again, we see God is the one in control of all this. He puts it into the hearts of those ruling the worldly institutions to devour each other. God sees to their self-implosion. Verse 18, the woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. Again, the immediate referent is Rome, but it symbolizes all cultures and cities opposed to the things of God. Now, those are the details. What What has the angel just done with John? The angel has basically pulled the curtain back to let John see 
the true colors of Rome, and by extension to see every evil manifestation in governments, institutions, and cultures that oppose Jesus and his church. And, and I think he's done this to, to make John aware of the fact, and the seven churches that this letter is written to, to make them aware of the fact that it's, it's not all it's cracked up to be. The world they're a part of may have some aspects to it that are alluring, enticing, but it's not all it's cracked up to be. And there will be a just recompense that they face. Now, by way of application, let's, let's talk about three things. I want to talk about the allure of idolatry, the self-destruction of idolatry, and the hope in a world of idolatry. First, the allure of idolatry. This harlot is the personification of idolatry. She's seductive. She's opulent. She's pleasing to the eye. She's enticing. Most of us, when we think of idolatry, think of worshiping statues of wood or stone. But in Ezekiel 14, God charges the leader of Israel with setting up idols in their hearts. So idolatry incorporates psychological, sociological, emotional, intellectual components to it. Romans 1 tells us idolatry happens when we put created things in God's place. When we put created things in God's place, when we give to created things that which ought to be reserved for God alone, when we look to created things to do for us what only God can do, Tim Keller famously defined idolatry as turning good things into ultimate things. Let me mention two. Just There are hundreds we could talk about. Let me mention two. First is feelism. First is feelism. Now, our cultural progress since the 18th century, has trended toward placing personal feelings and desires in the driver's seat. Personal tastes, preferences, institutions sit on the throne of our lives. We crown them as God. Translated into everyday human experience, this turns us into images similar to the harlot. When our desires are king, we seek to satisfy them at almost any cost. Decadence. There isn't much we don't have because every desire has been met, or so we think. Bottom line is we are finding it increasingly difficult to say no to our feelings. We're finding it increasingly difficult to say no to our feelings. Let me tell you something. Only God has the right to that kind of devotion. The angel shows John the end of the harlot, which is destruction. Why? As a way of deterring him and the seven churches he writes to from following the path of the harlot. Feelism, along with all the other idols of the world, ends in destruction. Now, feeling isn't inherently bad. Feeling's a part of how God made us, but you need to remember something society will not tell you. Your feelings are flawed. Say it out loud. My feelings are flawed. Say it again. My feelings are flawed. Feelings are part of how God made us. Yes. Yes, they are, but they are flawed. When, when our life direction is dictated by them, we are bound to discover we've taken numerous bad turns. So feelings need to be shaped transformed, molded, so we feel the right things at the right times to the right degree and express them the right way. Second one is social acceptance. Let's face it, as Christians, we like to be liked. We crave the culture's applause. We want to be marketable. We want to be mainstream. 
We want to be moral on whatever the mainstream defines as moral this week. This leads down a dark hole. We often care more about offending fellow creatures than offending the creator. And we let that inverted emotion determine the way we think about everything from social policy to sexuality. We often care more about being on the right side of history as culture's trendsetters define right than we care about being on the right side of scripture. One author put it this way. He says, you're begging, for the, the, you're begging the world for its love, but it will not love you back. James puts it this way. He says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. So one of the telltale signs you've crossed the line with the world, it's very easy. Your unbelieving friends love everything about you. If that's true, you know you've crossed the line. If your friends love everything about you, you've crossed the line. Why? Because there should be, your unbelieving friends who are not in Christ should be able to find something about you they don't like. Something you do, the way you talk, something you believe, something you're for, something you're against. If the world loves everything about us, we've crossed the line into social acceptance. Our lost friends, acquaintances, coworkers, family members should be able to find things about us they don't like because we're Jesus followers. Second, the self-destruction of idolatry. The beast, the ten horns, the prostitute are different aspects to the same entity. Verse 16 tells us there's a self-destructive nature to this system of power and influence. See, here's the problem with idolatry. It turns something that can't be good at being God into God. That's what idolatry does. It turns something that can never in a million years be good at being God into God. Only the God of the Bible is fit to be and can actually be good at being God. Everyone, everything else will eventually show you its true colors and it will be bad at being God. Take feelism as an example. When feelings and desires are God, what happens? They call the shots. That's what gods do, by the way. (laughs) They call the shots. You do what your feelings and desires are telling you to do. Well, any addict will tell you the strongest desires you can have can be the most destructive desires you can have. Feelism is destructive. Idolatry is self-destructive. Take, take social acceptance. What does social acceptance look like in high school these days? I don't know. Drinking, vaping, sexting, destruction? When has that ever led to a charitable and fruitful end? Or it may have the veneer of nobility with things like honors and AP everything. Burn the candle at both ends. What happens? Burnout. Destruction. Why? Social acceptance is bad at being God. Now, it's worth saying something about government and idolatry as well, because those are actually the fundamental categories Revelation speaks in. In Revelation 12 and 13, we see the dragon, the two beasts, parody God by forming this false trinity. 
They're trying to present themselves as a God substitute to the world's population. The beast of the sea is clearly the state. The beast also parodies the resurrection of Christ by dying and reappearing. So Revelation is confronting us with the notion of the state serving as God. So I should say something about statism. According to historic socialism a la Marx and Engels, humans are not the creative workmanship of God whose image we bear and who offers us salvation in Christ. In the absence of God, humanity is reduced to homo economicus. As humans are reduced to material economic categories, socialism diagnoses our deepest problem not as a broken relationship with our creator, but a material economic problem. This leads to an inflated emphasis on the saving power of external sociopolitical economic remedies, while the internal human propensity to evil and selfishness goes undiagnosed and untreated. Just as a quick side note before I finish that, this is precisely why the solution to poverty is not more money. At least, it's not more money alone. Though Marx and Engels would would have us believe we are solely material beings, if we're constructing our understanding of what it is to be human, on the word of God, we realize we are more than material beings. We're spiritual beings, we're relational beings, we're emotional beings, we're intellectual beings. So a more robust and biblical view of human nature leads to a more robust definition of poverty, which in turn leads to a more holistic approach to poverty alleviation. This is why genuine poverty alleviation has to take into consideration not just financial factors, but spiritual, relational, emotional, and intellectual factors as well. But under the paradigm of Marx and Engels, an economic gospel is created. And in this economic gospel, who does the saving? Well, as Chesterton observed, once we abolish God, the government becomes God. Just like everything else, the government is really bad at being God. And the proof is historical. Time and again, Marxism fails where it's tried. It collapses under the weight of its own idolatry because idolatry by its very nature is self-destructive. Stripped down to its bare bones, Revelation 17 is showing us self-destruction is endemic to socialism and totalitarianism. This is why Revelation teaches us it rises and falls. It rises and falls. We get duped by exterior luster, but because idolatry is self-destructive, it implodes on itself. Only the God of the Bible is fit to be and can actually be good at being God. Everyone and everything else will be really bad at being God. So lastly, what is the hope? What is the hope in a world of idolatry? Well, part of the hope is just being able to spot the things I've mentioned already. If, if believers, though, refuse to get swept up into this idolatry, we will face hardship. Okay, the harlot is drunk on the blood of Christian martyrs. Okay? The blood of Christians soaked the streets of Rome. When, when government is God, nothing else can be. Nothing else is permitted to be. This is why, by the way, Russian churches and synagogues were bulldozed and atheism became the state-enforced dogma of the Soviet Union. You know why? Well, when government is God, it won't tolerate another cook in the kitchen. When government is God, it essentially says, this town ain't big enough for the both of us. This is why atheism is endemic to statism. 
You can only have one master. Everything else is really bad at being God. When, when something else is God, it will punish you because they're really bad at being God. That's what substitute gods do. They do not forgive you. They do not fulfill you. They punish you. Substitute gods always work that way. When, when career is God, you will serve it until you've sacrificed everything you have on its altar. Marriage, kids, time with Jesus, church involvement, friendships, personal health. When safety is God, you'll hermetically seal yourself off from people, from situations, from ideas that creates a breeding ground for loneliness and lost opportunities to do good to others. So what's our hope in a world of idolatry? It's verse 14. All of these entities will wage war against the Lamb. But the Lamb will triumph over them because he's Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. Pay attention to who's doing the action in that verse. This isn't calling us to any profound strategic movement. This is the lamb who does this, not you. All you want to be is situated on his coattails. That's all you want. That is your only objective. Get on his coattails. The lamb will triumph because he's Lord of lords and king of kings. This title is a way of saying this is true God. You got lots of false stuff out there. This is true God. In a sea of idolatry, Jesus is saying, no, 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 not them. In a sea of idolatry, he's looking at us, he's saying, no, not them. Not them, me. I'm God. Jesus says, feelism, you've got to go. Social acceptance, get out of here. Government, I don't think so. Career, hit the road. Safety, bye-bye. You all stink at being God to my people. You overpromise, you underdeliver. You trick them, you abuse them, you dehumanize them. In the place of contentment, you offer disgruntlement. In the place of fulfillment, you offer emptiness. In the place of Christian adventure, you offer boredom. No more. I'm King of Kings, Lord of Lords. My called, chosen, faithful followers find the good life in me. This is what you're called to. You find the good life in Him. He says to you, my children, I am good at being God. Oh, I'm good at being God. Watch this. Watch this. Keep your eyes on me. I'm good at being God. This is where your attention needs to be. Jesus is saying to us, this is where your attention needs to be. Forget about the other stuff. Forget about that. Those are all bad at being God. I'm really good at being God. Keep your eyes up here. Author of Hebrews. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author, the perfecter of your faith. Right? Do it my way, Jesus says. Do it my way. Look up here, he's saying. Look up here. Eyes right here. Do it my way. Do it my way. And you'll taste hope in a world of idolatry. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you'd help us with that. Part of the battle simply is for where our eyes set their gaze where our minds devote their attention, where our hearts devote their affection. This is part of the battle. It's part of the struggle. We live in a world that's got thousands, millions of idols that clamor for those things from us. And so, Lord, the simple takeaway for us is to fix our eyes on you. Eyes on you. Eyes on you. You're good at being God. You're good at being God. I pray that you'd help us with that. And Lord, for the person sitting here who knows they are in too deep 
with, with an idol, with a false god. I pray they just simply admit that to you and you would help them to turn their face in your direction. Help them with that. And Lord, we want to do that as we close today. When we sing, when we lift our voice, and we let these words roll off our mouths, this is what we're doing. We're essentially saying, Jesus, eyes on you. Eyes on you. So we do that now. In your name. Amen.